gentlemen, welcome to Talking Dreams. I am your host with the most, amateur podcast. My name is Rajiv. Before we go any further, we are on the Twitter and the Instagram. That's at Talking Dreams. That's at T A L K. The letter N like Nancy D R E A M S. On those pages, you'll find our link tree, which will take you to wherever you can listen to Talking Dreams. So make sure you do that and make sure you hit that subscribe button. On the show this week, we are welcoming back Eric Bischoff. We had Eric on the show before talking about his dream of leading up to when he was the president of World Championship Wrestling. This time, we have him back for a talking episode, and we will be talking about the history of television. We talk about our personal history with television, like our first memories, first TV shows, shows that we like, and things of that nature. But also, Eric has been in the television business himself, so we talk about not just his wrestling history with television, but Eric also produced non-scripted television, so we talk about what went into these productions, and we talk about what goes into a pitch, what is a way that you can get your show green lit, and what happens once the show gets green lit. So it is a very, very informative chat with Eric, and it was a heck of a lot of fun to do this with him. We do have an inspirational quote this week, and here it is. You should set goals beyond your reach, so you always have something to live for. That was Ted Turner. Let's get to Eric. So I have with me a return guest. He was on before talking about his dream of starting out with Ninja Star Wars, eventually turning it into executive producer and then vice president of World Championship Wrestling. I have with me once again, Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you doing today? Good, Rajiv. How are you? And by the way, I actually made it to president of WCW. So yes, you did. Not leave Shame that out. on me. Shame on me. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I Eric- tend to forget myself sometimes. So it's okay. <laughs> oh, man, that's too funny. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on. Uh, you have a unique history with television yourself. And that's what we're talking about today is the history of television. Now, when you were growing up, because for me, as long as I've been around I've always had a television in the house. Uh, was was television uh, something that was always there with you guys as well? Or was that something that when you were a kid was originally a, kind of a luxury to have? No, it, no, I grew up with a television in the house. There was only one for a long time. You know, my friends, um, a, a, a small handful of them uh, actually had two TVs in their house, uh, which was really, really big time. That was like... <laughs> You know, for us, it was the same thing as having a Cadillac, you know, right. wow, how'd you do that? But no, we had one TV in the house and the television was, uh, man, it was a center part of our, our lives really, you know, by the time we got home from school and my dad came home from work and we got our homework done, your evenings, your time alone was really spent around that television. Ours was at least. Yeah, I remember too growing up, like we had two televisions. We had one in the living room, and then my parents had one in their bedroom, and that was it. So you were lucky if you had anything more than that. 
And now we have one television in every room of the house. Isn't it crazy how it's kind of manifested that way? It It, it is really. And, you know, we, we were the same, obviously, you know, our kids growing up each had their own television in the room and we had a television in the, the main living area and we had a television in the family room. And yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I think, you know, we could have probably lived without it, you know, probably <laughs> would have developed uh, uh, maybe closer relationships, done more things together, spent more time, you know, doing homework or whatever. Uh, you probably could have been more productive, but yeah, we, our, our kids fell, fell victim of that too. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how uh, you back back when we only had two televisions. I remember we would always sit at the table, have conversations. How was everybody's day? And then eventually, once we started having more TVs in the house and, uh, you know, just schedules started being all over the place, it you know, that that whole sitting at the table for dinner turned into we all sit around the TV and put on our favorite show instead of actually we talking. We didn't, we didn't do that a lot. And, and by the way, I want to skip over one. What, what, what I do remember, we didn't get a color television until, wow. Maybe the late sixties. Mm. So the one television we did have was black and white. And I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in Detroit and, and, a lower income, probably um, lower middle income uh, neighborhood. Everybody's, you know, everybody's dad worked at General Motors, you know, Ford Motors, Chrysler, and they all basically had the same types of jobs, you know, machinists or working on the assembly line. So we were all kind of in the same socioeconomic class. And I remember one of my neighbors, I think his name was Bob Morris. He was actually a friend of my dad's um, went out and bought a color television. I'd never seen a color. I seen them in stores, but I had never seen one in a house. It was like a color television. <laughs> and yeah, man, we would go over there and watch uh, my, my parents would take us over there and we'd all gather around the only color television that we knew of anywhere in a neighborhood. And uh, we'd all sit around and watch that color television on Sunday nights. We'd watch the Ed Sullivan show. So yeah, that was a big damn deal. Wow. So what, what is the first TV show that you remember watching on that black and white television? You know, by the way, I don't think it was Ed Sullivan. It was something else. Anyway, um, <laughs> what was the first show I remember watching on television? It would have been a Western because my, my, my dad was into Westerns, right? And my dad had control of the television. Of course. Like power thing, you know, you, you don't get up and touch that. Of course, we didn't have remotes then, right? <laughs> don't get up and touch that television without dad telling you it's okay. Um, you got to turn that handle slowly because we don't want to wear it out. <laughs> don't flip through the channels. Do one at a time, slowly. That was the instructions that we got. Um. I would say it, oh man, Gunsmoke maybe is Rawhide was another one that I remember watching as a kid. Obviously, later on, I think after that was Bonanza came along in the Virginian and Big Valley. Uh, but there was another one that Masterson was a series at the time that we watched. And there was one other, other rifleman with Chuck Connors. Mm. That was that might have been one of the first ones. Oh, yeah, the Rifleman with Chuck Connors. That's too cool. I remember the first show. There are two shows that I remember. I can't remember which 
which one I had seen first. I'm sure that there were shows that were just on the television when I was a kid that, you know, was just on as background noise while I was playing with whatever action figure or whatever. But the first two shows that I can remember is uh, the Rugrats on Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was like a staple in our household. We always had to have the Rugrats on whenever it was on. And then another one, funny enough, is The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air starring Will Smith. Those were like my two first memories of actually sitting down and watching a show. I'm, I'm sure Rugrats came first, but those two in particular were ones that I, I can think back on and remembering being a kid sitting down and watching those shows. Well, you're clearly a lot younger than I am. <laughs> by, the time Rugrats hit, by the time Rugrats hit the scene, I think I had a couple of my own. So, <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> was Rugrats big in your Maybe house not. too? I'm sorry, was Rugrats big in your house too? I know my kids didn't really get into it too much. Really, really for, I don't know what my kids really didn't get into typical kids content. Um, Teenage Mutant, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My son was kind of into that. Yeah, my daughter wasn't really in too much in particular into television and, and she, you know, she's a very, very smart, um, always has been, Mm -hmm. she showed up at preschool and, uh, has had, you know, maintained a 4.0 average since the day she walked out of preschool, you know? (laughs) So she was never really into television too much. She was more into her crafts and her hobbies and things like that. But Garrett, yeah, he'd sit down and Watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, Dukes of Hazard was one of his favorites, of course. I think we made him watch Sesame Street just because we wanted them to be more well-rounded than I was. I grew up watching <laughs> Westerns, and lo and behold, a kid grows up in Detroit. All he sees on TV is Westerns through the formative times of his years when his brain is still being molded by his environment and the things he's exposed to. I was exposed to Westerns. I leave Detroit, and where do I end up with? I'm out in Wyoming. <laughs> the perfect setting for a Western. Maybe there's something to all this stuff. <laughs> Maybe the stuff you watch on television as a kid really does impact the way you end up in the future. Who it knows? could. I mean, there's something to be said about that. And, uh, you know, I, I decided to look up the history of television in preparation for this as well. And, uh, you know, it could be, too, that I'm so fascinated with television because of how much it impacted my life. Um, I I'm, can remember at a very young age watching something on TV and being like, I want to be an actor when I grow up because that guy makes it look good. And that guy makes it look fun watching shows and wanting to be uh, entertained. And I think that could be why my personality is such that I kind of feel like I I need to entertain people a lot and why I like reactions to things as opposed to more psychological things. So, you know, there is something to be said about what you just said that maybe television does mold you from a young age. If you start watching it at a very young age. And, and, and weirdly, hold on one second. I'm going to shut this shade. It's getting kind of bright in here. I came in here and there were clouds and there wasn't too much sun. And <laughs> all of a sudden I sit down and the sun breaks free and I'm looking at myself kind of glowing here. I was going to catch fire. I thought you were just so excited to talk to me, Eric. That's why you're glowing. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I dig your brother, but not like that. <laughs> Oh, uh, where were we? Oh, and you know, here's another, you know, television irony. I remember one of the things that my brother and I, and I'm, I'm four years older than my brother. So when I was probably mm, 
seven or eight, my brother and I, we, we would have the house to ourselves on Saturday morning because mm-hmm. our family only had one car. And my mom would drive my work, my dad to work on Saturdays because he worked a half a day on Saturdays. And while my dad was at work, my mom would go shopping and then they'd come home. So for that four or five hour window, sometimes a little longer, my brother and I had the house to ourselves. So Saturday mornings were like, it was amazing, you know? And keep in mind in today's environment, if a set of parents left their two infants at home that long, you know, they'd probably end up getting a visit from the local police department. But, <laughs> it was, you know, it's just the way life was. It, it mm-hmm. was what it was. And we'd have the house to ourselves, and we'd start off watching cartoons. Again, black and white. You know, Heckle and Jekyll and Bugs Bunny and, oh, God, what else did we watch cartoon-wise? Uh uh, what's the, the, the road runner and the coyote? I always loved that one. Cause it was a oh, yeah. healthy dose of violence in that. <laughs> I, I dug it, but we, we get through the cartoons as the morning progress and you're getting closer to noon. Um, there was a, a series called sky King hmm. about this guy who had his own plane. He was a private pilot and he was also kind of the unofficial sheriff out West again, and it just dawned on me again. Here we go. Another TV irony. So I grew up watching Sky King on those Saturday mornings when I had the house to myself with my little brother. And I could make him do whatever I wanted him to do. So that was fun. And I used to love Sky King. I ended up with a pilot's license. I ended up buying my own airplane. <laughs> I just realized that in this conversation, but after sky King and the indelible impression it left upon me at an early age, um, we'd watch big time wrestling on CKLW and CKLW was a Canadian television station. It was in Windsor, Canada, it was Detroit's right on the river and the river separates Canada from Michigan. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, Saturday mornings, man, that was the last thing that came on, it came on at noon. And I knew my parents would probably be home within the next hour or so, hour and a half, depending on how much time my mom spent shopping and all that. And right after wrestling was over, then I would grab my brother and we would reenact wrestling matches. And as I just realized and talking to you again, where did I end up? WCW. the, 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 The question of whether or not television shapes your futures. Now, I don't think in my case, at least even arguable any longer because <laughs> you know I, I grew up watching westerns i moved to wyoming i grew up watching a guy fly an airplane around out, out west and i ended up being an airplane pilot and then right after that i'm watching professional wrestling with my younger brother and throwing him around a room for about 20 minutes or a half hour and i end up as president of wcw so it, without question what you let your kids watch are going to influence their lives Yes, not only on 83 weeks do you live to enlighten, but on Talking Dreams, we also live to enlighten. Well, and this is just like a moment of self-discovery because (laughs) I had never thought about it before. Never occurred to me, but man, how true is it? That is so awesome. And you heard it here first on Talking Dreams that Eric has realized how much. only on Talking Dreams. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so in my research, Eric, I realized that television, it came around a lot sooner than I even thought. Uh, the very first television show was called The Queen's Messenger, and it was viewed as an experiment and was broadcast in New York, 
on September 11th, 1928. It was originally. Oh, I didn't know that. I would have never dreamt that. That's yeah, crazy. I mean, it was originally a radio drama. They adapted it for television and broadcast. And uh, these were received by televisions that were three inches in diameter. And they were set up in various places all around the city. And they were using special effect props in order for the broadcast to be enhanced for the actor's performance and the sound. So no boom mic, no natural sound. They had to use these special effects in order to get the sound as well as the picture running so that's just crazy to me that in 1928 was when they first did an experiment and it looks like the show was about 40 minutes long because they wanted to make sure that they had everything going and see how it was going to work out but yeah the first show that was broadcast was in september of 1928 how crazy is that never would have bet i would have bet i could if, if somebody said eric well, i bet you a thousand dollars but you got to be within a year. I would have probably thought, okay, maybe late thirties. Sure. Maybe. Cause it took a while to develop television. Right. So yeah. Think, not late twenties, man. That's, that's wild. And sitcoms these days, especially in the nineties, but these days still sitcoms are still relatively popular as a format. And uh, I found out that the first sitcom, according to the Guinness book of world records was a sitcom titled Pinwright's progress. It was a British television sitcom that aired on the BBC television service from 1946 to 1947. So I didn't even know a sitcom was thought of earlier than even the fifties or the sixties, but here we are. You know, it's weird regime. And I, you know, I don't mean to cast, you know, too broad a net and wide aspersions, mm -hmm. but first of all, British sitcoms suck. <laughs> They're just not funny. <laughs> there is nothing I've ever seen in a British sitcom that made me think to myself, uh, anything other than why would anybody think that's funny? <laughs> and then to imagine, to take it even further, and to imagine that somebody had the bright idea to bring a British sitcom to the United States as the first sitcom, what a, what a poor judgment. Poor, poor judgment. That program, that person never grew up to be a studio head. Trust me. Can you think of any British sitcom that you've seen or have you tried to block them all out of your mind completely? No, I mean, I've, I mean, I've never sat down and watched more than five minutes of one. So they don't <laughs> you know, pop out of my mind, but I've tried. I've heard other people talking about, oh man, you got to see this. I know you don't really like, you know, British humor, but you'll dig this. Okay. I'll try. The hell? <laughs> what? No waste of my time. Waste of my time. Oh, my God. Like, remember when you don't remember because I'm like older than your parents probably, but <laughs> like, I remember when Monty Python first made the scene. Mm. Was it Monty Python and his flying circus or some shit like that? I, I believe I so. Can't remember. But I remember everybody's talking about Monty Python, Monty Python, Monty Python. All right. I'll keep trying until I find one. Same thing. It's like, this is stupid humor, stupid. There's no irony in the humor. There's nothing that tweaks your imagination. It's just, ugh. it could be a sense of culture though. Like maybe oh, there's something is. in the British culture that we as Americans don't quite understand with their humor. No, it, there is. And I'm trying to have fun with the topic, but <laughs> you know, it's one of the reasons why not to skip ahead on you. Um, it's one of the reasons why 
believe it or not, professional wrestling is for the most part, pretty easy to distribute, to mm. distribute internationally. Right. Because humor is greatly affected by culture. And that's why it's, it, you won't find American sitcoms generally mm-hmm. um, overseas either for the same reason, because American humor isn't funny or as funny to the British or to people in India or to people in Japan. That's like, it's, you know, everything's so different. It's not funny. They don't get it. But wrestling, because it's so basic, mm-hmm. you get it. It's when it's done right, in my opinion. It, you know who the good guy is. You know who the bad guy is. Or bad girl, whatever, good girl. Um, and it translates. You don't have that a lot. No, you, you, you got cultural issues, obviously. Sure. Because even in Europe, you know, when I was president of WCW, um, we would distribute our WCW programming internationally. And you could do things in, in the UK, for example, in terms of levels of violence, for lack of a better term, um, that you couldn't do in Germany. Or if you did it in Germany, it would have to be on between midnight and 6 a.m. Hmm. Because that was generally the adult uh, audience. Right. So it's really funny things that, you know, nobody would ever take exception with in, in here in the United States with, in terms of wrestling content. Now, I'm not talking about the extreme crazy stuff. I'm just talking about on your given three hours of raw or two hours of SmackDown or AEW, whatever. Well, not AEW because they, they push the envelope, but raw or SmackDown, you just, you know, let your kids watch it here. Nobody would think twice of it, but there's certain areas in Europe where it's a no fly zone, man. And because of that, a lot of our shows were really edited because mm-hmm. we would distribute to the show, to the, to the television network. And then they would edit it to suit their standards. Right. And as a result of that, you know, the, when you watched a WCW show over in Europe, it was like, hell <laughs> is this like a collage, a montage a <laughs> compilation? What is this? And is it true too? I know they did it for WWE a bit, but maybe they did this with WCW as well. In Canada too, they would edit the show. And that's somewhere that's that's just north of us. Well, Canada is a little different. Canada, now I'm I'm sharing things with you that are what I recall when I was active in the business, right? Okay. So things may have changed. If yeah. Everybody's going to fact check me out there. But when I was active in the television industry, even out of wrestling, when I was producing with my own production company. Um, Canada had, what do they sell? Canadian. Con- there was a Canadian content rule. Probably still is. I bet there is. Cause they were very, very de- uh, defensive of it. Mm-hmm. Protective of it. Where if you're going to distribute an American product in Canada, a certain percentage of your crew had to be Canadian citizens, Interesting. a certain number or percentage of the creative staff, writers, directors had to be Canadian residents. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot, a lot of Canadian content requirements that made for WCW, it made it really difficult to get the kind of distribution deal that we wanted, which is one of the reasons why Vince McMahon, WWF had an office in Toronto. And they had an actual, I mean, it was incorporated. They were paying Canadian taxes. There was, I can't remember the guy's name that used to run. It was big, heavy set dude. Um, Carl something or another. I'll think of it. Carl DeMarco, right? Good guy. 
by the way, good guy. But he ran the WWF's Canadian office as a way to avoid having to deal with the Canadian content requirements. Mm. Little point of fact. Wow, that's that's so interesting. And if you want to hear more of the business behind the business, Eric does a show on ad-free shows with Talking Dreams alumni, John Alba, and uh, it is called Strictly Business. And I've heard quite a few of those episodes, haven't heard every single one of them. And you and John go super in-depth with the business behind the business. So if you found what Eric was just talking about super fascinating, then you'll definitely find that show to be super interesting as well. Well, thank you for that plug. Absolutely. That's what I'm here for, Eric. I'm here. You're here to help me. I'm here to help you. All right. That's how the world goes around, brother. All right. Going on with the first on television, we have the first cartoon I found in my research was a cartoon called Crusader Rabbit. Have you ever heard of this, Eric? I have not. Its main characters were Crusader Rabbit and his sidekick Rags. The stories were four minute long satirical cliffhangers. It ran from August of 1950 to December of 1959. There were a total of 455 episodes, 195 of which were black and white, 260 were in color. And then one note that I found super interesting in my research of this show was Jay Ward, who would go on to create Rocky and Bullwinkle show. He was involved as the business manager and producer of the show. So that was the first instance of a cartoon on television. Rocky and Bullwinkle. I used to watch that one too, man. That uh, even I was watching that one when I was my dad. He put it on when I was really young. He was like, "This right here is one of the greatest cartoons. You may have your Rugrats, you may have your SpongeBob's, but you need to sit down and watch Rocky and Bullwinkle." So <laughs> I made sure I watched it, and I did love it a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I don't know why, man. I always hated that moose. <laughs> Yo, Rocky. It's just talk like it. I mean, that was a particularly stupid moose maybe if it would have been a more intelligent moose if it talked more like a moose instead of like this i might have got into it but i just it didn't allow me to suspend my disbelief because of the inauthenticity unauthenticity of the character and the voice associated with (laughs) god i'm full of shit (laughs) i love it i love it The first color television program was a variety show called Premiere. It was the first commercially sponsored television program to broadcast in color. The program was a variety show that aired as a special presentation on June 25th, 1951 on a five city network hookup of Columbia Broadcasting System, also known as CBS. Now, the production faced many challenges in the studio, but the show did go off as planned and reactions were generally positive, but with some reservation. It was said that the color appearance of many of the objects displayed on the program proved to be quite eye-catching, with several write-ups stating that the color was better than movie color. Especially appealing were the brightly labeled commercial products being showcased. A number of reviews mentioned that color TV proved it could be very compelling advertising medium. Now, Eric, how important is that advertising medium to television? Oh, I don't know. How important is air? <laughs> Nothing lives without it. <laughs> you know, unless it's below the surface. It, it's it, that's the lifeblood. Joking aside, it's the it, there is no television really without advertising up until streaming. You know, streaming started to change that model. And well, even cable, really, I should say, I should 
be more specific. Cable really changed the model mm -hmm. um, where you had to now subscribe for content. Now streaming, you know, clearly has changed the model dramatically over the last really oh, five, 10 years um, where it has put a lot of pressure on advertising because now advertisers have a choice. Do I broadcast hoping that somebody out there is going to actually see my commercial or do I spend my money on streaming platforms where I know people are watching my commercial? So yeah, it's, it's, you, you can't have one without the other advertising is key. And, you know, the style of commercials is changing as well. AEW and WWE to an extent is doing what's called picture in picture, where it has the commercial on one side in a bigger box. And then in the smaller box, they're still showing what's going on on, on the show. So what do you think of picture in picture as a concept? You know, that's been going on for a while. <clears throat> I, we were doing that in TNA, and I think we may have tried it in WCW. It's possible. I really can't remember anymore. Okay. Um, it all kind of blurs together, you know, sure. the timelines, but picture to picture has been around for a long time. And my experience with it is that the biggest challenge you have is with the advertisers themselves, because they're not convinced that that little tiny picture within the picture or a re or a reduced, <coughs> excuse me, a reduced kind of landscape for their commercial while something they really want to watch is going on is effective advertising. So it's all oh, the question is, okay, are people just going to change the channel, therefore not seeing my commercial, or are they going to be so focused on what's actually happening that they're not paying attention to my commercial? Right. You don't know. There's really no way to track that. At least if there is, I'm not aware of it. It wasn't when I was doing it. So you go through these cycles, almost seasons, we're about two times a year, you'd get a call from the network and I say, okay, we're going to try something a little different. We want to do picture within a picture. Okay. We'll do picture within a picture. Wasn't that hard to, to uh, execute on our end. Right. And then about three months later, say, okay, we, we decided that we really don't want to do picture to picture anymore. Let's go back. And then about six months later, all right, we had a meeting last week and we're going to try picture to picture one more time. And you go through that process four, five, six, seven times, sometimes with the network over the course of a year or a year and a half. Uh, so I don't know where advertisers have, you know, come out on this. And maybe there's some research now that allows them to determine more accurately if they're effective or not. But uh, yeah, it had some experience with it, but it was a mixed bag. Yeah, I would say it, it as a as a public, I'm, I'm not in the television business, so I'll call myself the public. It, to me, I... It's not really that big of a deal. I know that one way you can argue for it is it's possible that the consumer, the public will stay on the channel because something is still going on in their program and there's just a commercial that's in the background and that's one argument for it. But, you know, oftentimes AEW in particular, Excalibur screams, we'll be back in 90 seconds. So it's like, okay, cool. I can change the channel for 90 seconds and then eventually I'll, I'll come back to it. So automatically I tune out because that's basically just told me the next 90 seconds aren't very important. I think if they had finishes in picture in picture once in a while on AEW's, pro on AEW's broadcast, maybe people would stay tuned because, hey, I might miss something if I change the channel. What do you think of that idea? It's an interesting, it's interesting. And in while you were setting that question up, I'm, you know, image trying to picture 
the last few that I've seen a picture to picture episodes and trying to remember if I had any reaction to it all, which I probably didn't, mm. you know, you're just conditioned to just you know, okay, check my phone or, you know, <laughs> yep. do something else. Right. Yep. Um, but I do remember when we were executing, when we were producing the show to accommodate the picture in picture strategy with our network, one of the reasons I didn't like it is because you know, you know, you're now the image is small, you know, you're not getting the impact. You're not getting the emotion and wrestling, like any form of entertainment has one purpose unless it's educational, you know, documentaries and things like that. But if it's scripted, you know, any kind of scripted content, it's designed to create emotion. Mm-hmm. And now you're taking your picture and you're doing this so the effect of that is you slow the match down, you time the match, you direct the match in such a way you're talking to the referee, the referee's talking to the talent and you know, you're buying time, mm-hmm. you know, you'll go into a rest hold or you'll do some long protracted, whatever it is you can do to kind of just buy time. Yeah. You're still in action theoretically, but it's action that's designed to not mean anything because you don't want to do anything that means something and run the risk of it, not really creating any emotion. Right. So from a producer's side, that's the difficult part of it because it, it ends up with the product that you're putting out there because you're in a picture in a picture is a less interesting product, mm. which affects the audience. Yep. Right now, the same thing happens in a live audience when you're taping an arena, for example, uh, cause now you got, you know, 90 seconds, sometimes longer than that, man. I remember three, three and a half minute commercial breaks in TNA because commercial breaks have gotten longer over yep. time because they're having a harder time selling advertising. So they got to sell more of it to get to a profit and commercial breaks keep expanding and expanding, but, um, it's, it's tough in terms of, you know, what about doing something hot in, in a picture in a picture, I would bet against it, but I would try it mm. I, I, because my instinct tells me no, but I could be wrong. So sometimes you just got to try shit and see if, Hey, y'all, because what you're talking about doing Rajiv, with that strategy is reconditioning the audience right, right now. The, I would imagine 99% of the audience is just like me. We become so accustomed to, you almost know you've got an internal clock in your head while you're watching something. And before they even go to a commercial break, you're probably, okay, they're going to go into a break in a minute. So I'm going to go do this. Exactly. I mean, because we've watched so much television and you just get the rhythm after a while. And I don't know, maybe that would break it up. Maybe that would shock people. Maybe they'd, you know, tune out because it's picture in a picture. And then when it comes full screen again, you're recapping what just happened while you weren't paying attention. But that process of reconditioning the audience would take a long time. Yeah. Because the other presentation has been going on so long. And because we've all become accustomed to the rhythm and the patterns of commercial breaks, we subconsciously start tuning out every 12 and a half minutes, right? And whatever it is. Yep. Uh, and what you're talking about doing is reconditioning them. I, I, I think somebody should look at that closely and play with it. Look, man, you got to do everything that you can to hold your audience. Exactly. You, because it's so competitive out there and it's so easy because of the nature of 
me again, I'm 67 years old. I am hardly the key demo, <laughs> but I, when I'm sitting watching television, my phone's on my lap. And after 12 and a half minutes, I'm already thinking about who I'm going to call or what email I'm going to respond to during the commercial break. It's all going on subconsciously. Mm -hmm. But the minute I know we're in a commercial break, boom, I'm gone. You know, I mean, listen, but I'm gone. And you're talking about changing that dynamic. So that's, that's why I think somebody should try it. You should get credit for it too. Oh, thank you. If it happens, I hope you speak up like, Hey, wait, I was on talking dreams. And Rajiv said, hey, this. if that happens, you should, you should just, Edit this down <laughs> to about two minutes and 20 seconds and put it on Twitter to prove it. <laughs> will do. Will do. Uh, so when you were working with WCW, you were under the Turner umbrella. And mm -hmm. in that umbrella was the very first 24-hour news channel, CNN. Did you ever talk with Ted about what his thinking was around having a 24-hour news channel at that time? Well, no. Um no, I never did because I already knew I, I had been a fan of Ted Turner and a fan of CNN uh, back in the day. Um, but I had read about the evolution of CNN. I knew all about Turner Broadcasting. I, ironically, I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything about WCW until about six months or so before I actually applied for a job there. But I knew all about CNN and where it started, how it started, and read a lot about. Ted's philosophy and strategy. And can you share with uh, anybody that may not know what his philosophy and strategy was as to why CNN was such a big deal for him to get going? Well, it's a lot. And I, I probably wouldn't do a very good job. I would su suggest anybody who's interested, and you should be interested if you're interested in culture, if you're interested at all in television history, you know, the, the idea of a 24 hour global news network was such, I mean, it was the Elon Musk idea of Ted's era. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that was like, you're going to do what? <laughs> you're going to make a car fly? What? <laughs> Who's going to watch that? No one's going to watch that. You know, it was just, it was that kind of a moment in our, our history. Um, but I think just from my own perspective, I think one of the reasons that Ted was driven to create a 24 hour global news network is because much like with the Goodwill games, Ted really believed in bringing the world together and breaking down barriers of communication and a more free exchange of entertainment and, and in particular news. And you saw that manifest in a lot of the things that Ted did, you know, long after CNN. You know, I remember one, just to give you an indication of how Ted thought, if you work for Turner Broadcasting, <clears throat> and God forbid you're in a meeting with Ted, but even <laughs> if you're in management or an employee, hell, if you work for Turner Broadcasting and you made a reference to foreign content, uh, I heard about this new, you know, foreign series that's, you know, available and whatever. You get your ass handed to you mm. because Ted thought that was a pejorative. It's not foreign. It's international. It's outside of the United States, of course. Mm. It's international content. But if you use the word foreign in association with television content, you learn very quickly that that was not the right thing to say. And I think, again, all of that points to Ted's 
vision, I guess, of bringing the world together. It's probably why he donated a billion dollars to the United Nations. It <laughs> could be. All of those things are kind of indicators of who that man was. Oh, that's awesome. And we touched on a, a little tiny bit earlier. You mentioned streaming and over the top streaming has really taken over. I mean, Netflix was the first really big streaming service and others kind of fell into place after that. What was your initial thought when streaming was starting to become a little bit more mainstream? I, of course, I was really interested. You know, I was actually in the television business and producing content. So the idea of there being a new market, someone else to sell. <laughs> um, that's always the thing you want to think about and read about hear about when you're in the business of creating content. Right. But at the time, a lot of the content that streaming, I remember the first one that I paid attention to was Hulu mm. and I heard about it. I thought, okay, I want to learn, you know, so I'm going to download it. I'm going to subscribe to it, whatever. And the, I loved it actually, but the, a lot of the content was more, I don't want to say like national geographic, uh, but it was all very visual. Mm -hmm. you know, it was very, you know, surfing competitions in, on Oahu or whatever. It was all very beautiful, colorful, non-traditional content in terms of commercial television. So I checked it out. I was fascinated by it. And there, I think there were a couple others that I dropped in on, but there was never, <clears throat> from, a, from a business perspective, it was never really uh, an open market for the type of content I was producing in streaming at that time. That's all changed. You know, in many ways, I wish I was still producing content because the market is so big right now and there's new platforms popping up all over the place, which is great for a content creator. Um, but I, you know, I was interested, but I didn't jump in too deep for the reasons I just explained. So you were just talking about you were a producer at one point producing content for television. So what can you share with us about what exactly goes into a pitch for a show? Does it come huh. up with the show itself? Does someone pitch the idea to you so that you pitch it to a network? Uh, anything that you could share with us about what goes into the pitch for a show? You know, first of all, there is every, every show, every pitch is different. Hmm you know, in some way, shape or form. Now there are certain types of pitches or certain types of content. For example, I, I was primarily almost exclusively, but not quite. We were in the business of producing non-scripted slash reality television, right? So the people that we would talk to that were the executives, the buyers for that type of content, um, they're all looking for a lot of the same characteristics of the show. You know, sometimes those characteristics would change because certain things would become trendy all of a sudden. Um, and, and everybody was now focused on that. But for example, a lot of the shows that we pitched, you know, you need to have conflict. You, you just do. Even in a show that's, you know, driven by conflict, and conflict resolution, you need some comedy in there. But above all else, the first thing everybody wanted to see was show me your characters. Who are your characters? And why does anybody relate to those characters or want to relate to them? So you're in a, pitching a reality show. That was, a, you, if you got through that part of the pitch, you're doing pretty good. Because you could tell, you know, you, you knew that you're, you knew you were going to get the questions. 
And you pretty much had your answers, you know, figured out before mm-hmm. you go into the beating. But you can tell in that pitch if your answer resonated or if we're off the mark. Right. So you go through the, you know, the three C's, I will, I, I guess. Um, and then it goes to story. What's the arc? You know, I remember when we first started pitching shows, reality shows, you'd go in there and you'd pitch them in a, a, a concept, just a broad concept, right? And if they like that, they'd say, okay, here's a couple bucks, go do a treatment hmm. or go do a, you know, a, a sizzle reel. Or they would just give you their questions. You go back and you work on it and you come back with the answers. But a lot of times the executives we pitch early, early on, all of this has changed. My daughter now works as she's a director of development um, at a Warner media company. Um, And I talk to her all the time about stuff she's working on. It's like, oh, this is mind blowing, man. I'm glad I'm not (laughs) out pitching shows, having to jump through these hoops because as time goes on, those conversations got more and more in depth and precise and all that. Mm. But a lot of it was, it was, you know, the three main things that we talked about a minute ago, and then they'd want to know, okay, where does this go? Is this a six episode series, eight, 13? What is it? What's the duration? And you give them your answer and then they'd say, okay, what's uh, in the fourth segment of the third episode? So they wanted, they wanted to know that we had thought that series out because wow. you don't want to go in and just pitch. I got this big idea. And really not have a plan as to where it goes because they're not buying one big idea. They're buying a series. They're making a commitment that was at that time, a lot of the shows that I was pitching had a cost that were on the low end, 500,000 an episode Mm -hmm. on the high end, 750. Mm. So now you're going to sell them four, five, six million dollars worth of your idea. They want to know that you've thought through your idea, right? What's the arc? That was it. Those were, those were generally it. Who's the demo? Who'd you design this show for? Why is the demo that, because you knew what their demo, you go into pitch a network, you knew exactly who their demo was because you had a good agent yep. or in our case, we'd been dealing with a network. We'd sold them four or five shows before. So we had the relationship with them where it was, you know, pretty obvious what they were looking for. Um, but they'll ask you, you know, why, why is a 18 to 34 year old female going to be interested in these two characters? And you'd have to have a good reason for that. So then would you say that it's harder now to get a show green lit? Oh, no, without question. It's one of the reasons why my partner, Jason Hervey, and I, we both, you know, very amicably, by the way, it was no, no drama or anything like that. But we were both watching the same things happen. You know, when we first started working together back in 2002, I think, maybe three, you know, the very first show that Jason and I sold together, we sold it on the back of a bar, right, on a bar napkin um, to the president of UPN network for $750,000 an episode. Wow. And we pitched it to him at lunch over Italian food and a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to sketch out whatever it was I was sketching out on the back of a bar napkin. He said, okay, let me take this back to the office. And we got a call <laughs> two days later said, okay, they're going to buy, you know, eight episodes. Like, wow. wow. So that was, you know, it's like, Whoa, I like, I like this business. <laughs> we go out to lunch. We drink a couple glasses of wine. We have some lasagna and we walk out with a $6 million deal. <laughs> I was born for this world, right? <laughs> but things were a lot easier then. And because reality was new. I mean, mm. it had been around for a while. You know, road, road, 
road rules and all that. So what was it like? We, but we got in pretty early and it was a lot of just throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks kind of strategy from the networks. Right. Just looking for outrageous shit that would stick, <laughs> but that, that has evolved. And now well, let me back up a little bit. So back in the day, 2003 to about 2010. So for about six, seven, maybe even eight years, whenever we would pitch a show, let's say it was a complicated show with a big or expensive cast in different locations and all that, we would spend, it starts with an idea. Someone could come come to us with an idea. We could be sitting around riffing and come up with an idea. We could see something that somebody else was doing and thought, you know, if you tilt that about 20 degrees to its right, that would be an interesting show. It, it, it varied. But then you go from the, hey, what if thought to, all right, let's get this thing down on paper because we know what the questions are going to be. Who are the characters? Is it a conflict resolution show? Is there some comedy in it? Is it lighthearted? What you know what you know what's coming, right? So then you take that idea and you start shaping that idea to fit the format, mm. to fit the mold, and make sure to include the things that you either hope they're looking for, or because you have a relationship with them or your agent does, you know exactly what they're looking for. Right. Take this big idea and then you adapt the idea to whatever the network is looking for. And hopefully that works. And we could do that all on paper. We could do it all on paper. Never had to do, never had to see a sizzle reel. I never even heard of a sizzle reel until about 2012. I didn't know what it was, but we could do it all on paper. And that meant that we could probably keep for just Jason and I, we were a small production company. We, you know, we had a staff, you know, probably eight or 10 people uh, at a minimum. And then it would expand up to about 100, 120 people while we were actually in production on the show. And they were all freelancers, right? But when it was just Jason and I, we could keep six or eight shows in our development pipeline pretty consistently throughout the year. Then around 2012, I think, is when I really started getting pinched with it. Networks started wanting to see more. Mm. So you you go in with the paper pitch, format, whatever, all the other PowerPoint, whatever you want to call it. You go in with your paper pitch and they go, okay, great. Let's see the sizzle reel. That means they want you to go out and shoot a scene. They don't want to get, they want to get a feel for your idea mm-hmm. beyond just what they see in a PowerPoint. And that wasn't too bad because you could go out and do a half-assed decent job, you know, scratching that itch for them. And you could do it for a couple grand. But now if you want to keep 12 of those, every time you put one in your pipeline, it's costing you two or three grand, right? So it starts getting more expensive. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. We were making a lot of money off our shows and the profit margins were fine. Um beyond fine actually by today's standards but then over time networks started wanting those sizzle reels to be a little higher production value we really want to see what this scene looks like which means now we got to go to a set or we're going to go on to a location which means now we got to bring lighting now we got to bring an audio crew 
We can't just, you know, shoot something in today's world on an iPhone anymore. Because at first it was it. Okay, we just want to see something. We want to get a feel. Mm -hmm. See a little chemistry. They didn't care what it looked like. Now they want something that they can take to their bosses and look good. Because they want to impress their bosses. So guess who has to pay for that? Now that two or $3,000 sizzle reel is coming in at around five or six. Okay. Then it's, okay. We, we like that, um, but we want to see a casting tape. Now you're pitching a reality show. Typically, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there is no typically. Back in the day when we were doing it, back in the day, fuck, it's not been that long, but whatever. <laughs> it, it's at that period of time, we, typically we would, because we did a lot of testosterone driven type of male, 18 to 49 year old content. So they were big shows. You had big casts. You're going to have to have four or five, six people on a show at a minimum anyway for a one-hour show because mm-hmm. you can't just focus on one or two people and hold the att- audience's attention. Right. You, need a, you need a cast of characters in, in your show. So now you're shooting a sizzle reel with six, eight people, and they have to look good. And you actually have to produce them because now if I'm going to – if I'm thinking about putting Rajiv in a reality show because he is the best, he's the wildest tow truck, tow truck driver in his hometown. And he has this crazy lifestyle as the producer of that sizzle rule. I got to bring all of that out of you. I can't just ask you what kind of truck do you drive? Hey, does your dog come with you? You know, let's just chat. Then no. And the sizzle reel, if we say Rajiv is just wild, crazy, almost criminal tow truck driver that people are afraid of because he's this big, burly guy and everybody that sees him thinks he's just going to take their vehicle and steal from whatever. He just looks big and mean, but he's got a poodle. All right. Now we got to bring, you know, we got to bring out the big badass regime that everybody's afraid of, but now we got to on a dime, show them some heart, Mm. you know, and get to know that side of your character. That takes a fair amount of production and pre-production, right? Because that's what you're selling. Now you are now selling the characters. They understand what the show is. They know where it's going. They know that you know where it's going, where you hope it's going to go. But now you've got to sell me on the characters because that's what they're betting on. And you can't just say, here's Rajiv. And say, hi, everybody. I got a tow truck. Meet my dog, Skippy. Thanks for stopping by. Bye. That's not it, man. you got to bring out because we pitched. Rajiv is this badass. People look at him and they're scared to death of him. You know, ladies won't cross the street. You know, young women scream in horror. Even guys don't want to walk on the same sidewalk as him. He's that intimidating. So now we got to bring that out. And now we got to make, now we got to show you the other side and bring out the heart. That takes a lot. And a lot of times you're dealing because you're not dealing with actors, right? Right. So, and people are shy and are doing what they think you want, you want them to do and all that, but you got to break all, you got to break through all of that. And you got to guide them into giving you the responses you're looking for. And that to do it well, is a real, that's a real tough job. And if you're good at that, if you want to, if you're a producer that really excels at bringing characters to life in the sizzle reel, you're a pretty busy person. You're, you're, you're a sought after individual. It, it is that it's an art. 
And it's crazy to me that this is all even before you get a yes, we want this show. This is all on the idea of maybe we will take your show. So that oh, now, no, oh, oh no, we're not even near a yes yet. <laughs> now, at this point, all of those expenses are on us. Right. And it, it, there may have been exceptions in the past. You know, everything, there's no, you know, answer that covers every situation. For the most part, those expenses were on us. Now you've got this small two-man independent production company with, you know, eight or 10 employees. And now it's costing you $15,000 to pitch a show. Because you can't go into a pitch without it. Right. Well, you can, but nobody's going to take it seriously. And they're going to make you go do it anyway. So you might as well go in prepared, right? Right. You want to increase your odds of success, you know, it's coming. And so now every time you go in and pitch a show idea, yeah, let's go do that. Put it on paper. Cool. Go shoot a sizzle reel. Now let's do a casting tape. Okay. Our guns are loaded. Let's go pitch 12, $15,000 later. Now, all of a sudden to keep six or eight or 10 of those in your pipeline, knowing out of 10, even when we were on a roll, I bet you we were only batting 250. Mm. A little more than two out of those 10 ideas would actually make it to a green light. Right. And you can see what happens to the economics of that. And as time has gone, oh, and then, well, and here's the last step before you got a yes or a no is, okay, now we want you to produce a one-hour pilot or a half hour pilot, depending on what format was. Now they would generally pay, they meaning the network, once they ask for a pilot, you could expect them to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And that was okay. You don't mind doing that, but that's a lot of work. And it slows down, the, it expands the time frame, right? Because now you go from in 2003, pitching a show on a bar rag, finding out, to, or bar napkin, finding out 48 hours later, you've got a green light for a $6 million episode to now you're going to spend twelve to $15,000 and it's going to take you an additional two or three months to do it right. Two months really to do it well, because you've got other stuff going on too that you're doing. Then you get to the point where they say, okay, here's the next step. We want to see a one hour or a half hour pilot. Hmm. And we want it to be an arable pilot. Well, that means now they want to see if you can, from a production value perspective, they bought your concept. They know where it's going. They see the characters. They like the characters. Now they want to see what it really looks like on the air. Not a low budget, six minute tape. They want to see a one hour fully arable pilot, arable to their network standards. Well, that increases. Now they're paying for it. So it's not the financial part of it, although they wouldn't pay you what you really needed to give them what they really wanted in their minds. They want an Emmy award-winning arable pilot. What they're paying for is not that. <laughs> so you end up bridging that gap. So you're still spending money. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the worst part of that is now you're, now you got another 60 to 90 days by the time you shoot it. You know, because you got to arrange for it, depending on where it is, locations, all that stuff. You've got to shoot it. You've got to edit it. 
And every time you do, you do a rough edit, you send it to the network. Hopefully a couple of days later, they get back to you with notes. Now you're going to go back and you're going to edit for another three or four days. Send them another pass. Great. Here's some notes. Only now there's some other people upstairs that now they have their notes. That process, that noting process is it's excruciating and you're doing it for a pilot. That's how anal the process has become. And you still don't have a green light. <laughs> it would typically, it would typically take a year and a half from the point where we had a paper pitch to the point where we got a green light. Wow. Year and a half to two years. And that's why you had to keep six or eight in your pipeline mm-hmm. all the time. Otherwise yeah, you're busy, you're in production, and then you're going to go another two years with nothing to do. So you constantly had to keep turning ideas over and over and over again. So you had something fresh to pitch. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for all that insight, Eric. And I, I know that uh, you probably have to go very soon. So I'm I, I got time, brother. I got time. Okay. Okay. Great. I'll let great. you know when I have to go, I'm watching my phone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As an executive producer, what is more exciting to you? Is it a great character or a great plot? You can't have one without the other. I think because of my, I guess, history in wrestling, I probably lean into character a little bit more than story. Although over the years, especially the last, oh, I don't know, six or eight years, I've really been analyzing story and thinking about story and learning about story and how it applies to professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. And when I say I lean in the character more, it's really close there because again, you can't have one without the other. Right. I think as, as far as fun, I still have a little bit more fun creating that character. That's just going to pop. And pop hard. And sometimes the nuances of a character, you know, some of the best, at least in my process in my head, and I don't do it for a living, but when I start thinking about a character, or if I see somebody else, a character, AEW or WWE, I often watch it from the perspective of what would I do to enhance that character? Or what would I do to change that character? Or what is that character doing that I think a whole different type of character would be better at? Right. Yeah, and you see, and it's a lot of it's man, it's the little things, it's the nuances. It's it's the little things that if there are enough of them added together, add up to a great character. And do you think so? This is just an observation on my end, mostly with my history with Indian cinema from, from India. Um, a, a lot of times I feel like the main like big actors, they'll start their career with movies that have amazing plots and they have good characters that are attached to the amazing plots. And as they're building their filmography and their resume, it feels to me like they start to focus more on, okay, but what's my character? Like, cool. Like the story is awesome, but what, what, what's up with the character? So do you think that that could be why sometimes actors will, you know, they're really big at one point in their career. And then eventually they're not quite as big. Is it because they're choosing character over plot? as opposed to trying to find a good blend or am I off base here? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know the answer to that because again, I think every situation is probably a little bit different, Sure, but I think if you, if you see patterns, if I see a pattern, 
I'll try to think of somebody while we're talking here that I think fits that really well. Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. Very, very careful mm-hmm. about the characters he plays. And his the way his character is perceived. So he's very protective of that, which is why you don't see a lot of him. You know, he's, he's smart business-wise because he doesn't have to do two movies a year or one movie every three years. Right. He can do a movie and make enough money on it because he's so protective of his body of work, his portfolio, his resume. He wants to keep that. He wants to keep control. I'm saying this like I know him. I don't. I've never met him. <laughs> but people like him. Right. They're so protective of that because they know if they're not, you become deluded. Mm-hmm. The director will see you go, oh, I know. Yeah, I know he's Joaquin Phoenix, but you know, th- I know this is kind of a comedy role for him, but he'd be great in it. Just offer him $25 million. He'll do it. And, and again, I'm using Joaquin Phoenix. He insert any big name there that is protective of their characters. If that actor or actress decides, yeah, it's not really, that's not really who I am. It's not my body of work, but you know, I think I'm going to try it because I want to expand my body of work. I want right. to be, have a broader appeal. Mm-hmm. Well, you might maybe not that good at that. And all of a sudden now you, your body of work takes a little bit of a hit because you went from being very protective of it and, and careful with it. You handled it very carefully. And then you took a flyer on this because you're kind of interested in doing it. You want to see if you can get into a broader market. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't any good, you carry that back with you. Now you've got to, it's like, a, it's like not paying your mortgage payment one month. That shit's going to follow you around for about two years mm-hmm. right? before people forget about it. Right. And I, I think that happens in, in many cases. Some cases, not some people just want to crank out as many movies as they can because they figure they've got a five or a 10 year, you know, career span. Maybe they don't want to work for the rest of their lives. And right now they are hotter than hot. And they're going to take, if it's good movie, good director, right studio behind it, right commitment to marketing. Well, you're going to do that movie. Yeah. For 15 or 20 or 25 or $50 million, not 15. <laughs> I don't think too many people are making that, but you know, 20, 25, 15, this is kind of the right numbers for most of the main characters, successful ones you see in movies today. And yeah, you'll have some of those actors, especially if they're young or like, fuck it, I'm going to take the money. I'm going and I'm going to have fun. And those are the ones that usually you see come up real fast and start trailing off. No, all good points there. All good points. So what's your favorite television show that you have ever executive produced and why is it your favorite? Oh, you know, I, this is I know it's song. like asking you who your favorite kid is, but <laughs> no, it's, it's really not that at all. It's different than that. Um, mm. I've never been proud of any of them taking wrestling out of it, for this conversation, but it was transactional. Mm. It was how I made my money. There were some that were more fun than others, but at the end of the day, it wasn't high quality work that was going to be remembered by anybody. <laughs> it was non-scripted reality, testosterone driven, lower budget television. 
It was really just transactional. It was very little passion in it, other than the fact that I love making a lot of money. Right. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> but that was that was my passion, not the art. Gotcha. And would if you could go back and change that, would you? I'm sorry, change what? Would you want to maybe go back and do it more for the art than for the money? I couldn't have done it in not scripted. I mean, okay. You can't. You know, I, I couldn't back then. Now. In today, you know, now you look at some non-scripted television now, and there's some of it that I, I'm, they lean, they tend to be more documentaries. Sure. You know, or what I, a new category of television and it kind of popped up, I think around 2012 or 13 was docudramas. Hmm. Wasn't a documentary, wasn't a drama, but it was a good docudrama. There was enough elements of good, solid, credible documentary work and technique mm -hmm. and storytelling and formatting, but there was enough conflict because that's what creates drama to that. You could add to that documentary style presentation to make it interesting. That was, that was, that's when reality went from, Kardashian bullshit, which still exists to this day, which is ridiculous <laughs> to me. But you know what I'm saying? The yep. what was the the one on the East Coast uh it was real hot for a while. Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore. I mean, that's kind of just car crash clustered <laughs> juvenile frat house, stupid nonsense, right? And people started getting tired of that. Now right. we're starting to get audience started getting tired because it was just so much of it. It was really cheap, right? I could produce that show for 250,000. I can produce that show for $180,000 and sell it for 350 an episode. So I was a big fan of it because I was passionate about the money, but the <laughs> art, the work, the end product was. Yeah. It's like being passionate about cooking popcorn at a theater or whatever. But as time went on and then the audience's taste started shifting, because they had seen so much bad shit that they were now looking for something that's still non-scripted, still not a comedy or a drama, but a, a, a little smarter. That was the term. We need something a little smarter. Smarten it up in a television sense, not a wrestling sense. So you would start looking at different types of programming. Then it got to be a little bit more interesting, but for the most part, it was pretty cheap. And what would you say is your favorite show that you've watched as a fan? Oh, that's, you know, it changes. Depends <laughs> on my mood, depends on my season, depends on my age, of course. Uh, you know, right now, as corny as this may sound, I mean, there's several that my wife and I watch a lot. Kingdom on TNT, mm. or Animal Kingdom, is coming back, I think, this weekend. So we'll tap into that because we love the characters. Mm -hmm. Story's good. Story's not bad. Story's nothing special. The characters are really, really good in that. The performances and the characters are really good in that particular episode. You know, uh, Better Call Saul is really getting interesting now to me. I really love that show. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm loving the arc and the, the shift in the characters that I'm seeing about halfway through season four. Really, really interesting to me. But, you know, I like Yellowstone. 
why do I like Yellowstone? I don't know. Look around you. And what did I watch as a kid? That's called the callback moment, by the way. What did I watch as a kid? What did I watch as a kid? I watched Western. That's how my brain was molded. And now I watch Yellowstone, which they film 80 miles from my house. Have you seen Longmire? Oh yeah, we watched Longmire. Longmire. I, 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 that was okay. Uh, I, I, that one warm. I, I got tired of that one about midway through. Um, yeah, I think that was little... they. Uh, I think around season four, they left AMC and moved to Netflix. So there was definitely a shift in tone at that time too. Yeah, it just initially I liked it. You know, it's one of the things I remember when we were developing shows. Again, you know, you, if you had a decent agent or if you've been working with, you know, a network and you had a personal relationship with the executives, you got a re- lot of really good insight is in, into what the network was looking for. And that one was interesting because as we'd often hear in some of those conversations, your network executive would say, look, you know what we really like? We've seen a lot of the, our shows have been shot on the East Coast. You know, a lot of them are being shot in very kind of predictable, non-distinct kind of backdrops or environments. We'd really like a show that was based somewhere in the middle of Iowa Mm. because we haven't seen what rural mid-America looks like in a long time. So now you're taking your idea and your characters and you're trying to figure out how to fit that mold. The location of a show, and this is the term that you hear, the conversation that you have a lot with executives back then, at least I would, was the the location has to actually be a character within Mm -hmm. the show. The location has to be instrumental somehow in the evolution of that show. You can't just say, oh, and by the way, we're in the middle of Iowa. There had to be a reason why you're in the middle of Iowa and you have to extract as much out of that as you can. It's one of the reasons why, you know, it's funny again, because I live so close to Bozeman, Montana. And, you know, I talk to people even around where I live here in Cody, Wyoming, and, you know, tourism's way up. Why? Because of Yellowstone. And it's not because, you know, it's Kevin Costner or anything else or that the story's that great, but it's just a cool backdrop. Mm-hmm. They haven't seen Montana as a character in a dramatic series ever. So in a way, the viewer gets to visit. They, they feel like, oh, they kind of know what downtown Bozeman looks like because we see it so often in the show. And Beth is always going into downtown Bozeman to have her martinis and screw with people at the bar and ruin <laughs> people's lives and exact her revenge on some nemesis, right? So the backdrop of Bozeman is in that show consistently. People feel like they know it. They want to come out and see it. Right. Well, that's great. Have you ever seen um, the show Psych? It used to air on USA Network. It was, I think, you know, I saw an episode or two because I heard a lot about it, but I never, it never didn't didn't stick with me that one is probably my favorite show just because it came at a time in my life where uh you know i, I there wasn't a whole lot going on for me and i think i was i was entering like a, a pretty down part of my life and it brought a lot of joy because it's it's comedy mixed with drama it's about a fake psychic and his best friend and they're working with the police department to solve cases that aren't really the greatest of cases but it brought that joy to me so that's probably why it's my favorite show and I think probably a very close second would be the first season of Twin Peaks was 
freaking yeah, amazing. Same thing. You know, another show that I think really demonstrates what we're just talking about, probably more in my era, more than anything was Miami vice. Mm-hmm. That was such yep. a stylized show and Miami was such a powerful character. I mean, oh, yeah. everything about Miami was like right up there in your face you know, and you could feel it. You, you almost felt like you'd been there, even if you never had at that. That's an example of what I'm saying that, that, that location became as important of a character in that show as the other two actors. Yeah. And I think I, I liked the movie when it came out, but I liked it more for the stylistic way it was shot as well as the performances by Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. But I think that's why a lot of people didn't like the movie because Miami was not really a character in the movie like it was in the show. And, and Miami has been overexposed as a character Yep, for location. That's right. Everybody, you can take a look at a scene from something coming out of Miami and you know where you could find it on a map. You know, right where that intersection is, because you've seen it all the time. <laughs> yep. Do you have any plans to go back to television, or are you pretty happy with just hanging out in Cody, Wyoming, and just shooting the breeze with people? No, for a lot of the reasons why Jason and I got out of it, because the profit margins just started becoming so tight. You know, one of the things that we didn't discuss in the process of pitching all of this and how expensive it became as television has become more and more competitive, especially over the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. increasingly so over the last five. And a lot of that is because of advertisers and streaming and all the, all of the above, but the profit margin for independent producers has gotten to the point now. I, I just won't do it. Mm. I, I won't work for those wages. Not, not as hard as you have to work and the risk you have to take. Right. in order to make it. Um, but back in the day, like I said, on a $750,000 an episode show, you know, we could do that for 350 or 400 grand. Okay. I'll take that risk. I'll work my ass off, but to go through that same thing and now make a 3% profit margin, nobody in their right mind goes into business, hoping to achieve a 3% profit margin. Right. Unless you're, you know, consumables like, you know, beverage and food and things like that. That's different. All right. Well, Eric, this has been an amazing chat with you. Uh, I loved going through the history of television with you and then finding ways along the way that that pertain to you and your history with television. Do you have anything you want to plug? Where can people find you on social media? You have 83 weeks on Mondays with Conrad. Anything else that you want to plug? Yeah, we've got 83 weeks. You can get that wherever you get your favorite podcast. Of course, uh, at freeshows.com. A lot of great content over there. I'm really excited about heading to Nashville at the end of July and seeing Ric Flair's last match and being a part of the roast and all the other great stuff that is going on at Starcast. Uh, so if you haven't got your tickets, go get them. What the hell are you waiting for people? <laughs> um, and I, you know, I love doing strictly business conversations similar to what we've had here today uh, with John Alba. So I love doing that. As far as getting back into TV, you know, it's funny. I got a call. I'm not going to, drop any names or mention anybody's name here, but I got a call actually last week. And, and I get these types of calls about once every three or four months, somebody's got an idea, right? Has an, has an idea or somebody that they want to attach. And could, could you help me pitch this TV show? What would you do with this? And I always graciously as I can thank them, but, no, thank you. I'm not in that business anymore. I'm retired. I tell everybody I lost my Rolodex. 
I don't even know who to call anymore, which is partially true, by the way. I didn't, I didn't lose it, but it's just so outdated. It doesn't worth it. Isn't worth anything anymore, but I always pass on them, but I got a call last week and it's in a genre that I've never been in before. So it's not testosterone, 18 to 49 year old male stuff. That's what I did mostly. Um, this is a completely different genre. Um, still non-scripted, but almost in a docudrama fashion. And it's smart and it has heart. And, and I told this individual, I said, here's what I think. I, he first, he pitched me the idea and I said, let me think about it overnight because it takes me a while to really process things and think about them the way I have to. And I, the more I thought about it overnight, I got up in the morning and I had my first cup of coffee. And I said, wow, I actually, damn it. I actually love this idea. <laughs> damn it. Now what? <laughs> so I called him back and said, okay, here are my thoughts. Cause he pitched me in a really good, but very broad idea. Um, no depth to it. So I said, okay, if I was doing this, here's what I would think about doing. And I started adding the layers in and in it, same basic show, but about eight layers deep. And by the time I got done, I, the last part of our conversation was, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to go find at least five people that you know really well that will be involved in a casting tape. So you go do that. Here's what I'm going to do. I gave my list, myself my list of things to do. And yeah, I'm going to probably take a run at this show. Partly because I really like the person that called me and I want to try to help if I can. Secondly, because I really like the show and I think it's got a chance. Slim chance because it's so competitive out there right sure. now. But I'm, I have the time and I haven't thought about anything like this in a long, long time. So those creative juices are kind of trickling back to life in the back of my head. So I'll probably give that a shot. Oh, that is super awesome to hear. And everybody, let's keep our eye on social E Bischoff on Twitter at the real Eric Bischoff on Instagram. He may post if it gets green lit. He may oh, post yeah. if, if it yeah. goes. By the way, you've got about 18 months, so don't <laughs> rush. <laughs> yes, go back and listen to the process. It's going to be a while, but let's keep yeah. an eye out for it. For Eric Bischoff, I am Rajiv. We will catch you all next time.